How many times do you see a news report about a scam and think, well, of course, I would have spotted that one. I mean, if it seems too good to be true, then it is. But in reality, even if we think we are the smart ones, we are all potentially vulnerable to deceit. How many people have been blindsided by a cheating spouse, for example, or a seemingly straight shooting business partner? If you've ever been exposed to a scam, how did they reel you in? If you're happy to share that with us, you don't have to use your name. You can just send a text. Did they build your trust in some sneaky way or just leave out crucial details of what they were trying to tell you that pulled the wool over your eyes. Why is it so hard to spot when something or someone is off? Well, it turns out our brains are working against us here. Let's find out how that works. Dr. Christopher Chabri is a cognitive scientist who's co-authored a book called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Christopher, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you on Life Matters. I do have to start by asking you whether you personally have ever been deceived or scammed despite studying up on it for so long. Well, I think we've all been deceived or scammed in in various ways if you if you think about it long enough. Um, I don't think I've ever been the victim of a, a really grand scam that's cost me my life savings or made me make a really horrible decision. Um, but I can think of a variety of, of, of times when... Uh, you know, I was led to believe something that I shouldn't have um, or, uh, you know, something something like that cheated in small ways. And I, I could have been cheated in in larger ways. Probably true. It, it probably is as well. Um, it's not not the case that just because I'm a cognitive scientist and I study this stuff that I'm somehow immune. You know, as, as you said, it's really they're really fundamental things about human nature that make us all vulnerable to to being conned. Well, I'm glad to hear that you haven't had anything major happen to you. I hope that uh, people aren't cracking their knuckles over their keyboards in Eastern Europe right now and preparing to take that on. But you you, <laughs> you point out, Christopher, how even really smart, really high profile, really accomplished people can fall victim to cons. Tell us about former US Secretary of Defence, James Mattis. Yeah, that's a great story. So James Mattis is is well known as having been the Secretary of Defense uh, in the Trump administration. Before that, he was a Marine general. I believe he was in charge of Central Command. He was in Afghanistan and Iraq and and all over the place. And one of the you know top uh, military commanders in the U.S. And and after his military career was over, like many retired uh, generals and admirals in the U.S., he. Uh, entered the corporate world, and he joined the boards of directors of several companies and got involved in business. And one of the companies whose board he was on was Theranos, um, which we all know now was essentially a company that was perpetrating uh, a con of sorts by claiming to have developed these miniaturized blood testing machines, which, uh, you know, with a finger prick of blood instead of a tube from a vein, could run, you know, hundreds of of medical tests and do all kinds of diagnoses and so on. And it would have been a great invention and a huge step forward if if it really worked, but they never actually got the thing to work, which is fine. Companies fail all the time, but they pretended that it did work. That was the problem. And they even, uh, you know, the leaders of Theranos even deceived their own board members. And, and James Mattis vouched for Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO and founder of Theranos, uh, many times, said very glowing things about her and served on her board and did not realize that the underlying business was was not was not really real, and the underlying technology did not do what he was led to believe uh, it did. And he eventually testified at her uh, fraud trial um, uh, in uh, in San Francisco, uh, in California. And um, you know, the interesting thing about him is that he was interviewed and, and asked, um, "How can you explain this?" 
what happened to you? And he said, well, once in a while, we can all be fooled by something, uh, which is true. <laughs> Even true. people like him can can be can be fooled. But, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. Right. It's not just sort of like raindrops, like once in a while, we can all be hit by a raindrop or something like that. You know, there's there's a lot more to it than that. Well, yeah. And obviously being highly intelligent and highly accomplished does not necessarily save you. What's happening in our brains that makes us think, yep, that looks good. Well, I think the first thing is it's something almost so obvious that we don't even think about it, but it's really important. And that is that we have what's known as a truth bias. And truth bias simply means that, you know, our default tendency is to think that information coming in, things people are telling us, things we're seeing, things we're hearing is true. And, you know, you could imagine like, what if what if the brain worked differently? What if we uh, didn't believe anything we were told until we investigated ourselves and had evidence? Well, then you would go to the supermarket and you would see a box that said, you know, spaghetti on it. And instead of just putting it in your shopping cart, you'd open it up and see if there was really spaghetti in it. And, you know, we don't want people doing that. We don't want people going off and running scientific tests on their vegetables to see if they're really organic and and so on. You know, we can't get by without just believing most of what we're told. We couldn't even, you know, arrange a meeting with other people or something like that because we would always be suspicious of whether they'd show up or not. Um, so we have this fundamental truth bias which kind of colors everything that that we see and hear with, you know, the 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 the, the glow of, of truth. And it takes an according to the uh, the research on truth bias and the concept of truth bias, it takes extra effort to then take something that we have sort of temporarily marked as true and relabel it as false or even just as unknown if we don't really know whether it's true or not. So this is the first route of entry for the scammer is to tell you stuff to tell a lot of people stuff and just assume that they will at least temporarily believe it, you know, and then if you can do things like repeat it more and, you know, start to get into an interaction with people and so on, that's premised on the truth of some initial proposition. Well, then, you know, they have some uh, ground, you know, some traction and they can sort of get going with uh, a deeper con. We're speaking with Dr. Christopher Chabri, who's a cognitive scientist who's looked into why our brains are so ready to help us believe things that are, are not true. He's co-authored a book called Nobody's Fool with Dr. Daniel Simons. So I've been you, you mentioned that fact-checking everything is not wise and highly inefficient, Christopher. How can we counter our truth bias then without becoming completely suspicious of everyone and everything? Well, I don't think we have to worry about becoming completely suspicious of everyone and everything. We just couldn't operate that way. You know, we'd never leave the house. So we we have to, uh, you know, accept most of what we're being told and instead try to adopt some strategies of thinking about, you know, when are the stakes high enough that someone could be trying to weaponize our truth bias against us? Uh, so there are some obvious cases of this, right? Large purchases, big investment decisions, falling for somebody that you've met on the internet, um, you know, things that are really going to disrupt your life and make you rearrange things and could potentially cause a large loss, right, if you make a mistake. So many romance scams involve people basically like devoting, you know, their lives to someone that they have only met online or rarely met in person or whatever, until eventually it deteriorates into them having some crisis and you have to send them money. Likewise, financial scams, you know, Bernie Madoff being the number one example, people put all their money they had with him because he was supposed to be such a sure thing, such a genius investor, never lost money for his his, his investors, uh, for his customers and so on. Um, those are you know, obvious times when you should really stop and think, would it be worth someone else's time to scam me here? You know, and the answer in those cases is yes. You should also really try to sort of diversify yourself a little bit so that even if you do fall victim to something like that, it won't hurt you that much because 
kind of like I said earlier, it's it's hard to avoid ever being deceived, ever being conned in some small way. You want to really avoid the big ones. So if people had only given, you know, Bernie Madoff 10% of their money, well, that would be terrible, but they'd still have 90% um, at, at the end of the day. Text coming in showing that people have thought about this in some detail. Rob in Urandri in New South Wales says scammers rely on either greed or fear. Both of these emotions can override common sense. And Sam says, I just got a letter from the sheriff's office for jury duty in New South Wales. Must be a scam because they want me to give them my phone number and my bank account number to receive payment. A letter scam? No way will I send them info. I don't know, Sam, you could give them a phone call and see if it, you know, by Googling the number rather than calling the number on the letter. But that one's an interesting one, isn't it, Christopher, that that, that idea that, you know, someone could ask for your bank account details in, in the environment we have now where we see news of scams every day. Uh, why would someone be taken in by that? Well, you know, one, one important thing to keep in mind is that although it seems kind of outlandish for any one person to be taken in, like why why would your, you know, why would your listener be taken in now? They seem pretty savvy and it seems pretty obvious. Um those scams get sent out to thousands and thousands and thousands of people at once. So it only takes a few people to respond for the scammers to turn a huge profit on the deal, right? This goes back to the original Nigerian email scam, which which actually was a Nigerian letter scam, and then it was a Nigerian fax scam, and you know now it's email, and then now it's like Twitter DMs and so on. The same scam where they send out these ridiculous appeals to people saying they're a Nigerian prince, their their fortune has been lost, but if you help me out, we can get it back together and, and you'll profit. Um, that doesn't work on everybody. It only needs to work on a few people uh, for it to actually make money. So that's sort of principle one is that the scam isn't necessarily for you. If you're seeing through it, it doesn't mean the scam is so ridiculous that it won't get somebody. Um, they're sort of filtering out people like you who see through these things and um, uh, sucking in you know, the the few people who are, are very vulnerable to them. I guess the other thing I would say is that um, yeah, the bank details one is is a, is a red flag, right? N- nobody should be requesting your bank details that you don't have really a very solid business relationship already uh, with. And second of all, um, instead of calling back numbers that are on communications you get, you should go to some other source, find out what that organization's you know real and correct phone number is. Like you could try Googling their website. You could try even, you know, looking in the phone book, calling phone information, looking at your bank statement, you know, that you got from the bank where the right numbers are printed and so on, and then call that number and find out. Because sometimes scammers will go to these elaborate ruses of setting up fake versions of websites. Um, or if you mistype the, you know, the bank name, like instead of Bank of America, you accidentally type Bank of America or something like that, you know, then you'll get to their fake website and you'll get their number and you'll think you're on the real on the real one. So mm-hmm. one one of the, you know, all of this leads to the one of the general principles we talk in, about in our book, which is, uh, you know, ask more questions uh, about these decisions you're making and ask questions of yourself uh, and ask questions of the people you're dealing with. Uh, and that's sort of the number one most general principle in some ways to avoid being taken in is don't accept what you're being told without asking a lot of questions, more questions, you know, the higher the stakes are. Mm. It was interesting to read that there was four information hooks that people are especially enticed by, the idea of consistency, that there is yep. no variability in the data you're being given, which is un- yep. unlikely. Familiarity, when it rings a bell somehow, it resonates with us. Too much precision, you know, there's just, again, no variability. And potency, so someone's saying if, if, if we do this tiny thing, there'll be this massive effect, whether it's a financial 
financial payoff or something else. Are we more likely, Christopher, to believe those information hooks, attach ourselves to those hooks, if it comes from someone we feel uh, attached to already? Is there a tribalism involved? Yes, I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, tribalism could be part of it, but I think it, it all comes down to a sense of familiarity. The, the closer, uh, you know, the closer you feel you are to the source of the information, the more likely you are to accept it as true. That's what the familiarity hook is all about. So again, to go back to Bernie Madoff, which is a very familiar case, you know, in the US, a lot of the people who invested with him were referred by friends or relatives or by people they knew in religious organizations or social organizations, or they knew of his business reputation. He was sort of, he seemed like a figure they already knew. If you'd never heard of the guy and had no idea who he was, you probably weren't going to be sending him money. And that's the way he liked it because he didn't just open up his his so-called hedge fund to anybody. He only opened it up to people who were referred in. And he also made it seem very hard to get in. So you had to really be on the in crowd to be part of it and so on. And that example shows that it doesn't just have to be somebody who's sort of like tribally affiliated with you, like a, a fellow, you know, political partisan or something like that. But, you know, the closer the social connection, um, the better. And they're sort of versions of fake social connections that can be used for that. Also, celebrity is a great example. Why does celebrity marketing work so well? Even for things like crypto scams, many celebrities have actually been uh, sued um, you know, by the government for lending their name to cryptocurrency scams. Why do cryptocurrency promoters want celebrities to be involved so much? Well, we feel we know those people. It's not just that we pay attention to them, but we also somehow feel we know them. I guess the more we follow their Instagram, the more we watch their reality shows and so on, the more we feel like they're a person we know, and sort of that becomes one of these vectors of familiarity, which can lead to trust. Um, and we have no reason to trust celebrities, really. We don't actually know them. Familiarity is one of those four information hooks you mentioned. These are sort of things that normally are reasonable to to follow. Like, it's probably reasonable to take what your friends and family say, you know, to accept that more than things that just random strangers tell you. It's probably reasonable to... Um, uh, to believe in concrete, precise um, claims than vague um, ones that you can't quite understand. So what happens is scammers and con artists take advantage of that by designing their appeals to incorporate those things with the express purpose of taking advantage of our sort of legitimate biases and, and you know, hijack them and use them against us. And our good nature. Kim texts in to point out that the other thing is in many interactions, you don't want to appear to be suspicious because we hate hurting people's feelings. But she says, this doesn't affect me when the phone rings with the call centre pause. And Margaret uh, texted in as well to back you up, Christopher, about the fake uh, web addresses and email addresses. She says, I've been fooled by emails apparently coming from a familiar source. But if I'm asked for a response, I now double check the email address Sometimes find that the name is right, but the at isn't right. I have to slow down my reaction, though, so I still get tricked sometimes. Uh, I was really fascinated to Christopher Chabri to read about the experiment that was done with Deepak Chopra's tweets to try and work <laughs> out which kinds of people might be more vulnerable. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I might get a couple of details of this wrong. And this this research was done by um, Gordon Pennycook and others. Uh, they um, they, they developed this this test, they uh, sort of a, some kind of psychological test that they uh, was designed to measure how receptive people were to what they referred to as bullshit, which of course is a colloquial term, but it also has a somewhat technical meaning in the worlds of philosophy and uh, and, uh, and and psychology. And, and and bullshit is sort of material that 
um, is almost sort of neither true nor false. And, and the person who's putting out the bullshit, the bullshitter, as it were, is is bullshitting for the purpose not of sort of convincing you of one thing or another. Um, they don't really care about, you know, whether what they're saying is true or false. They have some other goal in mind. So, you know, a student might give a bullshit excuse to a professor for why they didn't turn in their homework or something like that. They don't care whether it's right or wrong. They just want to get through that interaction and, you know, and get an extension on their, you know, on their homework or something like that. So um, pseudo profound bullshit is sort of a subcategory of bullshit that sounds really important and meaningful. But when you think about it more carefully, actually doesn't mean anything. So uh, the researchers used text from Deepak Chopra's tweets, and they mixed it in with um, uh, other kinds of uh, you know, similar material and tried to see whether, uh, you know, whether people, uh, whether people accepted these, you know, thought these, these tweets were really meaningful and sort of people who were high in bullshit receptivity, according to the results of this test, you know, gave higher scores to, to these tweets and, and also scored, uh, lower on some other tests of, um, uh, for example, something called cognitive reflection, which is sort of your tendency to, uh, you know, think twice and like think more deeply about problems and so on. So, if we are receptive to bullshit, we may in fact be more vulnerable to being um, to being scammed and, and and taken in in various ways, not least by people like Deepak Chopra. Well, yes, I, I love how it, <laughs> it was sadly people who relied more on intuition and felt intuitively that these things were correct. I have to read some of the tweets that they they randomly rearrange these tweets into grammatically correct but otherwise very random sentences such as hidden meaning yeah. transforms unparalleled abstract beauty and wholeness quiets infinite phenomena. So disturbing. <laughs> Before we wrap up, Christopher, this is just such a fascinating conversation, but I have to ask you, given that all human brains have these ways of working that do make us vulnerable to being deceived. Is it worth trying to avoid scams and cons on an individual level or should we be pushing our policymakers to do more around prevention and perhaps better recourse when it does happen? Well, I think it's I think it's both. So, um, you know, there should be, I would say, probably I don't know what the law is in Australia or, or anywhere else, but I, I think often you read cases of people who perpetrated devastating scams and cons getting off relatively easy because they weren't violent crimes. Um, so even when they're caught, you know, and prosecuted and so on, the sentences are often fairly light. Um, another thing that there's a, a, one of the states in the United States has done something interesting, which is they've created sort of like a fraud offender registry, kind of like we have sex offender registries in many parts of the U.S. where people who are convicted of various sex crimes, sort of their names get put on public lists so you can find out if they move to your neighborhood or whatever. Um, so a fraud offender registry is interesting because one thing we found in our research for this book is that a lot of people are repeat uh, fra repeat fraudsters. I well, this one isn't in the book, but um, I, I read a story about a, a guy who did like art forgery. He was caught, he was convicted and sentenced, and as soon as he got out of jail, he started a new one, and he was basically convicted four different times for four different types of art art world fraud um, over a course of about thirty years or something like that. He just couldn't stop doing it. Um, likewise, the guy who was behind the fire festival, um, which uh, which you may know about, was sort of a fake rock uh, festival in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, you know, he, he did he, he did another one as soon as he as, as soon as he got out on, uh, you know, on bail or something like that and is now running fire festival, too, apparently, from what I hear. So it, working on repeat offenders, I think, is is really important. But I don't think we can wait for, you know, the government to to, to protect us from this. We have to learn more about what makes ourselves vulnerable. And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to cocoon and, and, and hide from the world. Um, I think if we learn how these things work, not just by sort of reading the more audacious stories, 
which are very interesting and, and useful in their own way, but by reading something about, you know, what is it about our thinking habits that make us vulnerable and and what adjustments can we make um, to reduce our vulnerability? I think that's that's still, uh, you know, equally, equally valuable. Yes, indeed. Christopher, it's been so fun chatting with you today. Thank you so much for your time on Life Matters. Thanks very much. It's been great. Dr. Christopher Shabri, a cognitive scientist. He's co-authored with Dr. Daniel Simons a book called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.